You're off to a great place. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. We're opening a new season of the IRSD Spotlight Podcast with these immortal words from Dr. Zeus, because in just a few days, we'll be on our way with the opening of the 2018-2019 school year. Throughout the district, teachers are already hard at work setting up their classrooms as we prepare to roll out the red carpet for students on September 4th. There's a strong feeling of optimism across the district as we begin what many believe will be an outstanding school year. We have a lot to cover in this back-to-school episode. First, Superintendent Mark Steele will join us to talk about the state of the school district and the important initiatives that are on tap in the coming months. Then, we'll be joined by Kelly Dorman and Renee Jerns, two former school principals who have moved into new administrative positions and who will oversee almost every aspect of instruction for students in grades K through 12. Finally, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Audrey Carey about preschool services in the district. First up after the break, Superintendent Mark Steele. I'm Dave Mall, and this is the IRSD Spotlight. With me now is Mark Steele, uh, Indian River School District Superintendent. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Mark, I've heard you say on numerous occasions in the last month or so how excited you are for this school year and you think it's going to be one of the best ever. Why is that? I do. We had last year to you know work on a lot of lot of issues that we wanted to, to correct and and put in the right motion, and you know we were able to do that, particularly with the school finances. And we're able to really put away more reserve money than what we anticipated. So, you know, that burden's lifted off our shoulders a little bit. Uh, secondly, we, we're or, organized central office with a new model. Uh, the district hired one extra person in central office this year, and that was Jay Owens, as you know, is the assistant superintendent. And we have taken a look at our instructional um, department, and instead of having a director of instruction, we now have broken that down to a director of, of secondary education, director of elementary education. And we've also um, moved our supervisor for special education to a director position as well. And what that's been able, or what that's enabled us to do is now we have a lot more collaboration and each of my principals in the, the divisions, the elementary division, the secondary division, and my special needs division, they have somebody particular to go to now who will specialize in that particular area. So that's going to you know, kind of narrow things for our school-based administrators when they need support exactly where to go. And we'll be given all levels of support this year. And I think we'll see that support be a lot better uh, than before. Having the assistant superintendent, to be quite honest, I think our community needs to know our school district. I'd like to spend a lot of my time doing just that this year. I'd like to hold uh, various community meetings, uh, give parents a chance to ask questions, uh, or district residents, uh, in fact, ask questions, take a look at where we are financially, look at where we are in the future. We are kick-starting our strategic plan. We are finishing up our focus groups. We'll soon start surveying, and we'll have community action plans community members as part of our action plans in order to reach any new goals that we seek. 
So it's going to be a busy year, and it's just got a good feel to it. It just feels like it's going to be a really good year out of the shoots. I want to get back to the budget issue in a minute, but the, fir- the I guess the biggest thing that we're facing right now, and it's something that you're, you've been working on already for a number of months, are the major capital improvements, certificate of necessities, and the possibility of us having a referendum later in the school year. Can you give us an update on where we stand on that currently? Sure. We. Uh, I'm just waiting on a little bit of information for the conversion of Millsboro Middle to an elementary. And Dave, just, just to review you know, what our thoughts were. You know, looking at the population growth in the north, we had to do something that would affect all three levels, being elementary, middle, and high school. At the same time, really, the cost effort of building three buildings uh, was going to be immense. So we decided, and we, we sort of thought outside the box and got some community support from the CBOC, and we decided that maybe we could pull this off with building one building, and that would be, you know, one large high school, uh, where we could keep all of the Sussex Central kids together. We could then utilize the old Sussex Central High School or the current Sussex Central High School as what we'd consider Millsboro Middle. Mm-hmm. We could bring some of the students down from Georgetown Middle in the southern part of Georgetown to attend that building. And we'll have plenty of room, uh, ample room, and, and room to do other programs if need be. Uh, we would then take Millsboro Middle, the old Millsboro Middle or current, and we would convert that to an elementary. So with this process, we build one building, we take care of three problems. And that's going to be by far the cheapest uh, way for us to go, particularly to resolve that issue in the north. In the south, we have a Indian River's projected to go over 1,000 by 2023, so we're anticipating six to eight classrooms, more likely eight classrooms, what we're asking for to be added to that building. And we only have room for four additional classrooms at Selbyville Middle, and we are asking for those four as well. All in all, we're looking for you know classroom additions in two schools and one new building. If things were to in the future, uh, economy-wise or building-wise, you know fall flat, or if the kids' enrollment were to decrease drastically, we would only have the one building that we had built. We won't have buildings that we'll have to close. Mm-hmm. So we'll be in real good shape. The good news is, I believe that you know if this referendum is successful and if the CNs are approved, I think this will take care of our overcrowding issues. For probably, I'm hoping, you know, 10 to 12 years. Now, I guess to update the process of how this works, the CNs are due to the state of Delaware by the end of this month. By the end of this month. And then what's the process there? We have to wait for approval on that for a little while. Yeah, they'll come down, uh, and I say they, DOE, uh, Jim Pennywell, will come down in September. He will take a look at the buildings uh, where we're asking for either the additions or the new building uh, for Sussex Central. Probably visit the old Central to take a look at, you know, the, the crowdiness in the hallways and in the cafeteria area, and then he will go back, they will have a meeting, and they will review all the data and all the CNs that were submitted. Uh, following that meeting, they will um, approve or disapprove some or all of the CN. They could accept it all, disapprove it all. They could take, for example, we'll let you build the high school, the other two is going to be a no. So there are a combination of things that could happen. We will hear back from them, we anticipate, somewhere early to mid-October. And once we have that, the district will have the opportunity to um, take a look at a referendum, take a look at the total cost, and plan a first referendum. And hopefully it would only take one. And if that doesn't, we would have to, we would come back in the spring with a, a second referendum so we could at least try to pass this if we possibly could. So that could be late fall, early 
2019. It could be anywhere within that time frame yes. after that. Also, can you give us an update on the new Howard T. Ennis School? Because I know that's that's really been moving forward, and not construction-wise, but mm-hmm. the, just getting that getting that project going. Well, at the board meeting on Monday, we'll be asking the board if they want to use a, a GC, a general contractor, mm-hmm. um, or an EDIS, construction management group, a CM. You know, we'll be making that recommendation to the board. We'll, we'll explain that a little bit to the board if they need to know more. And then we'll have to make a... a you know, a decision will start, you know, the planning process. We're still waiting on the final uh, subdivision approval to go through to county. Any day now, we should have that approval, and we should be able to go ahead, once we have that subdivision in hand, complete the transfer of land over to our district. And we can't start anything on the land until it's until we actually have ownership. Uh, but that could be any day, you know, hopefully, uh, before not no no farther along than the first week of September at the latest. Now, just to clarify too, that's a fully funded state project, correct? Correct. Yeah. There will not be there will not be any increase in any local uh, tax funds for that that building. Mm-hmm. Given the state of the the, the current Howard T. Ennis building, that's a project that's kind of a long time coming. I mean, they, they really do need it. It is, so. it is, and and you know, I would ask anybody who would want to you know t- go to Howard T. Ennis, you know, you should do that and take a look at the building and. You know, it's a it's a building. You have kids with a, a lot of special needs, and, and a lot of it, you know, you know, medical. And you know, it was built in the '70s, so there haven't been very many additions or upgrades at that particular point. So it it just really is not big enough to house the population that we now have. Yeah. Let's go back to the budget for a minute, because I know this is a this is a big deal and a lot of source of pride for you right now just uh, can you give us an overview of the budget situation in general in the district I know we're you've mentioned several times we're ahead of where we wanted to be as far as the uh, contingency and that type of thing can you just give us an update on that sure we uh, as you know we made a lot of cuts um, a lot of cuts I don't want to say cuts I want to say reductions and you know we asked our schools to do with less we, we, we cut positions and did not hire positions at central office we also had some other uh, cash-in things that we did to give that money back to the state. Now, in that process, we managed. We were, we were last year. We were, I thought, strapped. Uh, however, I will tell you, when I took a look at the test scores, it really didn't have a reflection there because we did as well, if not a little better, than we did the year before. Relied a lot on my teachers, you know, to to or my principals to step up, and, and my teachers as well. And that enabled us to get through that year. Now, what that did, it enabled us to pump in about $5.7 million into our contingency. We already had three. So we're up to about, uh, in our contingency reserves, about $8.7 million. Now, really, we need six to go from one year to the next for the payroll to get us during the tax season from uh, July 1 to the first taxes that will come in in October. Uh, however, you know, having the 8.7 gives us breathing room we set a goal for ourselves of 12 12 really gives us a lot of reserve money you know in in rainy day fund per se and we would hope we're going to budget two million in this year's budget uh, which will put us around 10.7 i really believe we're going to be very careful spending again this year so i i believe we'll hit our we'll easily hit our 10.7 but I'm very optimistic that we may get on the fringes of that 12 million at the end of next year. That's a pretty or big this year to get to eight million already. That's a pretty big deal. I know you're happy about that. It is. It, it like I said, it gives you breathing room. And and to be honest, Dave, we we actually this year we were thinking about 
trying to get, you know, bite a little bit more off toward that. But we wanted in the budget, wanted to give more money back to the schools. Mm -hmm. So we gave about a half a million back to our schools for budgets and some of the positions that we had in the uh, schools and EPRA programs. We we want to hire those positions back yeah. now. Yeah. So, you know, right now I feel comfortable that we're, we're getting our school staffed exactly where you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, we're still at the same time, you know, optimistic that we'll, we'll hit that $12 million contingency. Now, we're recording this on New Teacher Day. And you gave a, a, a talk to the new teachers this morning. That, that it's actually a whole week, but the first day is always a big deal. And you gave, you gave them a pretty, pretty fairly, not, I don't want to say lengthy, but you gave them a nice talk today. Can you talk a little bit about what you said to the new te all the new teachers, about 100 of whom were gathered at Southern Delaware School of the Arts this morning? Can you kind of... Yeah, I just wanted those those guys and ladies and gentlemen to understand that you know we're in the education business, and public education in today's society is, is takes some shots and are very unfair shots they take, and we don't see people going into the profession like we did 10, 12 years ago, uh, but what we now what we now know we we know more specifically of what we need and what our needs are, and it is a very unique occupation, and I wanted them to know that. It's not about coming to work at eight and leaving at three and teaching kids all day. Being a teacher goes much farther than that. It, it's community. As a teacher, what you try to do is not only help those kids be prepared for endeavors once they leave the public school system, but you want them to be contributing members of society. You want them to come back to your community and you know, take over so when you retire, you've got great people who can step in and take over. And, you know, the big thing I want to tell them today is never give up on a kid. Just when you think you might have reached that limit and you find that one thing that works and the kid all of a sudden has that light bulb, it's worth all that. The frustration is worth getting to that point. So I just wanted to, to impose on them that, hey, I've done this a long time. This is 38 years. And in the 38 years, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> wouldn't change a thing because yeah. it's... You know, it's, it's one of those occupations that you have a lot of satisfaction by seeing other people, you know, be rewarded mm -hmm. by working hard. Yeah. Well, before we wrap it up, do you have any final thoughts just for parents as we get ready to head into the new school year, which is going to start here in a, another week or so? Uh, any, any final thoughts that you want parents to know? Anything you want parents to know? Yeah, the one thing I think I would ask parents is uh, sometimes you see the amount of parent support um, as you go through, and that's not really necessarily a support issue. But uh, from elementary to middle to high school, you tend sometimes to see at parent conferences, you tend to see a drop-off. I would encourage parents that, hey, stick with your kids from K to 12 and make sure you know what they're doing online. Make sure you follow along with their grades. And with Home Access Center, parents have all of that data available to them in terms of the, the test grades, the quiz grades, the attendance, discipline. And, you know, it would behoove a parent not to sign up for that because you get a snapshot every week of what your kid's doing. And I can tell you, if there's a problem that, that crops up, it's much easier to deal with once you see it starting to form than it is to find out four or eight weeks down the road when the report card comes out. So I would ask all parents to, you know, sign up for Home Access Center, monitor the educational growth of your son or daughter, and, you know, when you need help, call the school, talk to the, the counselor, the teacher, or the administrators. We're here to help and we're here to support. And I want to encourage parents to know, if you need that, come forward and, and those people will be more than glad to help. Mm -hmm.
Well, that's great. Mark, as always, it's been a pleasure, and good luck in the new school year. Hopefully it'll be as good as you, th- you feel like it's going to be. I've got a good feeling, Dave, and thank you very much. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with our directors of instruction, Kelly Dorman and Renee Jerns. I'm now pleased to be joined by the two newest members of our district office administrative team. They are Dr. Renee Jerns, Director of Secondary Education. Renee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. And Kelly Dorman, the district's new Director of Elementary Education. Kelly, welcome. Hi, Dave. You two are similar in that you've both come to the district office after recently serving as school principals. Uh, Kelly, you were the principal at East Millsboro Elementary School for many years mm-hmm. before moving into your new position. Are you excited for this new challenge? Absolutely. Um, I'm very excited. I think the experience of being a building level principal and being involved in the instruction and the curriculum will allow me to better support the work that they're doing in the elementary schools, along with supporting the teachers because that's our main goal, because we wanted to impact our students and their growth. Yeah. Renee, you've come to the district office after serving as principal of Millsboro Middle School for, I think, six years. Um, But this is actually your second go-round in the district (laughs) office. Are you excited to be back? I am, actually. It's (laughs) funny you mention that. But yes, I was here previously as the supervisor of secondary instruction, and now I'm here as the director of secondary ed. Um, I'm very excited because uh, secondary instruction has my heart. And I'm excited to be working with not just the teachers, but with the students. Hopefully, we'll have have our fingers in that a little bit, and with the administrators as well. And you were a secondary teacher yourself. For I was years, middle yeah. school and high school language arts teacher for yeah. about 18 years. Yeah, um, I want to touch on several topics that are going to be important to parents as we enter the new school year. But I first want to talk about the Spanish immersion program, mm-hmm. which is expanding into the middle school level for the first time ever uh, this year. Um, we're going to have about 35 sixth grade students who have been in the program at John M. Clayton Elementary school um, since kindergarten they're now going to move up into the sixth grade over to Selbyville Middle School and they're going to have Spanish immersion there now Brene this is a pretty big deal right it is and actually I was as principal at Millsbury Middle School was selected to be on the state's committee for middle school immersion to develop this program so I've kind of been with it from its inception and this was a governor initiative and it is finally moving into our middle schools and we're very excited about that this year we'll start at Selbyville Middle School as you said and next year it actually moves from East Millsboro's group will be going into Millsboro Middle School. And these kids, I think what's interesting is that these kids have been in this program since kindergarten. Yes. Now they're moving into middle school and they're still in it. So and it's hard to believe. It seems it like is. just yeah. yesterday that immersion started. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Spanish Immersion Program, uh, at the elementary level, students spend half their day receiving instruction in English and then the other half being taught in Spanish by a qualified teacher. Mm-hmm. Kelly, you oversaw this program at East Millsboro Elementary School mm-hmm. pretty much from the beginning. What, um, what are the benefits of the Spanish Immersion Program? I was excited to have the program um, because it offers a lot of benefits. Some of the benefits are they enhance our cognitive skills. They come out being um, able to speak in two different languages and it increases their cultural sensitivity. 
activity as well. So I think it broadens their horizons. And I know it's hard to think about it at the elementary level, but we are thinking about where they could go in their careers. And this certainly will give them that leg up above others because they will be able to speak a second language. And this was an extremely popular program almost from day one, right? It was. At East yeah. Millsboro, um, we have people who get on a waiting list and want their children in it because there is mm -hmm. such benefits to being involved in this type of program. Yeah. In the sixth grade this year, immersion students are going to take a social studies class. They'll be taught in Spanish on that. And they're also going to take a more traditional Spanish class, but that's not going to just focus on language, but also on culture yes. and those types of things. Now, Renee, looking forward, what, what is going to happen with the Spanish immersion program as these kids move on through middle school? So as you mentioned, um, having the exposure to the Spanish language, but also the culture is very important. So that will continue through the sixth, seventh, and eighth grades. There will also be a focus on aligning what is taught to those children with what they take on the state assessment. So that's why you see the change in sixth and seventh grade from social studies to science in eighth grade, okay. because that's when our students do take the state assessment in science. Okay, so that's why they switch from uh, social studies in seventh grade yes. over to science in the eighth grade. Yes. Okay. Now, looking ahead, let's let's change gears for just a minute. <laughs> Curriculum-wise, because you guys oversee pretty much every, for K through 12, pretty much every aspect of the curriculum. What is there anything different or anything that parents should know curriculum-wise this year as we head into the into the new school year? At the elementary level, we're continuing with benchmark advance for our ELA and bridges for our math curriculum. One thing I think that would be beneficial for parents is if they visited the district website um, and then visited the student portal, which is where they can access both of those curriculum because they they can access the materials that we have and talk to their children about what they're learning in school. So at the beginning of the year, schools will also send home flyers with this information so they can access those materials from home. And that's on the district website? It correct? is on the district website. And is that website. the same for secondary too? Secondary, right? we are continuing with the springboard curriculum, which mm -hmm. is aligned with College Board and the SAT. We're continuing that in reading and math. And we actually have a new curriculum coming in for middle school science. It's a TCI program, very hands-on and aligned to the next-gen science standards. Mm -hmm. So teachers uh, went through training in August for that new curriculum, and we're excited because it is very hands-on. I think the kids are going to love it. Is, that, uh, is it more hands-on than it has been in the past? Well, we had the Smithsonian kits that always came from mm -hmm. the state, which is what we use for the crux of our science curriculum. Now we're going to have TCI, which is very driven by project-based learning, mm -hmm. and yes, more labs and hands-on hands manipulatives, things that they can actually work with mm -hmm. and figure out on their own. Yeah. And understanding that might be different from a peer so that they can all realize that we can learn in different ways and we can understand things differently, but it doesn't make it wrong. Or Sounds like a lot of fun to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, Renee, I, w I also want you to touch on something that, that you, well, you both dealt with it, but I know you, you did too, uh, Renee. Um, student code of conduct, that type mm -hmm. of thing, heading into the new year. Can you just address that for a minute? Yes, yeah, so parents can access the code of conduct on our district website, as well as each school. We just spent a lot of time this summer working on district-wide matrices for discipline. And what that means is if your child is a middle school student, discipline across all middle schools will be consistent through the use of these matrices and they will be provided by the schools at the start of the school year. Our schools also have uh, on the second day of school discipline assemblies um, at the secondary level that go over the code of conduct kind of play out for our kids you know what are the right ways to handle situations what are the wrong ways and how do you avoid getting yourself in trouble because we don't want we want the kids in the classrooms learning mm -hmm. so the point of these assemblies is to just teach them here are the right things to do that tie in with their PBS system 
so that kids can make the best decisions and stay in the classroom learning. Mm-hmm. The, you, made, you made a good point there. The student code of conduct is available on the district yes. website. And in the printed calendar that parents will receive the first day of school, the entire discipline policy is in there. So You're right, questions, Dave, yes. And that is also on the website. So those resources are out there if parents uh, want access to them. In general, let me just ask, ask you both like an open-ended mm-hmm. question. What can parents do in general to academic-wise to help their kids be successful in the classroom? Well, at the elementary level, I think one of the most important things they could do is spend time talking with their children when they come home. Ask them, what are they doing in school? What are you learning? And then I think it's also important to be involved in the school. Go to family nights. Go to open houses and conferences. Ask questions. But most importantly, read with your child every night. I think it's important (laughs) that you are reading with them and just talking about the things that they're reading. Renee, uh, anything to add on that? So coming from the secondary world, having been a teacher and an administrator both at the middle school and the high school level, I agree with Kelly. Reading is very important at home, except at this at this grade level, it shifts. Have them read to you or have them read to themselves and then ask them pointed questions. You can check Home Access Center. Their grades are published once every two weeks. Check them. Make sure that they're staying on top of their schoolwork. And if not, communicate with the teachers. That can be as easy as an email because teachers are very good about getting an email response back. Over the summer, there were also the state assessment score reports sent to families. So that's a good time to sit down with that score report. There are particular what they call claims on there, but for parents, it would tell you specifically if your child is having difficulty with writing, then that might be something you can support them with at home. I am also going to say, as a middle school parent, (laughs) advice that I can give to a middle school parent and a middle school administrator, please, please, please monitor their social media. If you are giving your children cell phones, please monitor any social media use. That is the biggest issue that we see coming into secondary schools is, is problems they get themselves involved in through social media. Yeah, that's very, very good advice. I'm mm-hmm. glad you brought that up. <laughs> um, in general, and I guess another question for both of you, how important is it throughout the course of the school year, regardless of grade level, for the parent to maintain contact with the teacher or teachers? Oh, it's extremely important. I think as a parent, um, you want to be involved in every part of your child's education. And I think you want to involve yourself in the school and be an advocate for your child. So from day one to the last day of school, you should be making contact with the classroom teacher, setting up meetings, and and immersing yourself in the school culture. And I reiterate that. uh, I think communication is key to everything that we do because if we're not on the same page in educating your child, then the child is going to take advantage of that situation. So we all need to work together. And you never want there to be any surprises, right? No. (laughs) And it is a team effort. I mean, we're working with you to help your child to to be the best that they can be. Yeah. Well, look, I want to thank both of you. You have given us some great information today. And uh, like I said, I just, I know we're, it's crazy. It's back to school. You guys were giving presentations to new teachers this morning. So I appreciate both of you taking time out of your schedule to join me today. We thank you for the opportunity, Dave. Thank you. Stick around because Dr. Audrey Carey will be joining us right after this short break.
Up next in the spotlight is Dr. Audrey Carey, the District Supervisor of Early Learning. Audrey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Audrey, I did some research and I found that you were one of the very first guests on this podcast when it started back in 2016. Yes. You appeared on episode five to talk about the Spanish Aversion Program, mm-hmm. and now 34 episodes later, here you are again, so it's good to have you back. Um, you moved into a new position this year overseeing preschool programs throughout the district, um, and this is part of a new commitment district-wide to providing strong early learning programs for pre- pre-K students. Why is this so important? You're right. There is a huge focus on early learning, not only in the nation, but the state, um, but particularly in the Indian River School District. Uh, We know that we want to reach as many children as we can, as young as as we can. Um, And we are looking to create the best early learning childhood system in the state of Delaware through innovation, uh, through sustainability, and really looking for some comprehensive programs. And early learning doesn't necessarily mean pre-K, does it? We were just talking about this earlier. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? So the definition for early learning uh, for Indian River is really birth through um, the age of eight, which is, you know, into second, third grade. Uh, And we are really focusing on that because we know that the most rapid period of development happens um, with a child until age eight. And then we also know by third grade that a lot of times um, if a child is behind, this is the time period that we could have caught them up. So provided early intervention and put them on the right track. So it's really important that we have children uh, where they need to be by grade three. Now as a district, we already offer several preschool slash early learning programs. And I wanna just go through a few of those so our listeners can understand what they are. First of all, what is the TOTS program? We always hear about TOTS. What is that? So TOTS is um, really for our birth to three-year-olds. We call them TOTS because they're little toddlers. <laughs> um, and often they have a different focus. Um, we really are servicing children that are earliest at this point in time is 15 months of age. Uh, and, and typically they're students um, with special needs. So there are little ones, TOTS. <laughs> <laughs> and that's housed at the GW Carver Academy? Yes. Okay, um, mm-hmm. And we have named a part of that building, the Early mm-hmm. Learning Center, mm-hmm. just to kind of encompass all of those programs. But you'll yeah. still see the labels of TOTS and Project Village. Um, one, because they do have different focus, and because the other reason is um, our TOTS is for our, our three-year-olds, as I mentioned. Um, the next one you kind of mentioned was Project Village. Mm-hmm. I know that's one that's close to your heart. You've been working with that for many years. <laughs> yeah, well, our, our former superintendent um, and now Secretary of Education, Dr. Bunning, started that program years ago, and I have really, um, it is, along with that Spanish immersion we had mentioned before, uh, Project Village is near and dear to my heart. One, it is for economically challenged four-year-olds. So we're looking at students that have a lot of at-risk factors. Um, And whether they are English language learners, whether they're students in poverty, whether they come from a single family home, Um, but we're really looking at having those four-year-olds to service more Mm four-year-olds. The really interesting parts about TOTS and Project Village, even though one's three and four, 
we're looking at how to take the best, um, they are tied to different regulations in the Department of Education, but take the best things out of those regulations, such as meeting with parents in their homes um, and setting family goals, looking at having smaller classrooms so we can really help target students um, that need individual support. So, so trying to blend the programs, but still um, stay true to the philosophies that um, were there from the very beginning mm -hmm. of those programs. And uh, Project Village is an award-winning program. Over the years, that uh, that program has really won a lot of um, state and national. Yes, it was also one of the, um, the first in the in the state, and I know in Sussex County, to receive a um, what we call a five-star rating, where it's a, a quality measure for parents. They are to go to any um, preschool program, whether it's a school-based program or a private community program or early learning centers um, that are not affiliated with the school but work mm -hmm. in partnerships where they look for that rating one two three four or five and five mm -hmm. being the highest to say hey this is a quality program yeah. so we were pleased to, to be one of the first recipients of that award um, we have gone through recertification mm -hmm. and again that program is is a five star so we're yeah. really excited about that that's terrific some of our schools some of our elementary schools also offer preschool services. Now, can you talk a little bit about those and what the parameters are for that? Sure. Uh, we do have some school-based programs housed within individual schools. We're transitioning at this time. One of the things in Delaware is that preschool is not a mandated program, only for students that might um, or do have a learning dis disability or special needs. So those school-based programs um, do have students with special needs, and we are working um, to kind of make even those programs a, a more comprehensive program where we are looking at rubrics to invite children um, and giving them a point system to kind of figure out who do we have in our programs because as I mentioned it preschool isn't mandated so how can you you service as many children as you can without any type of um, funding source for for all students well that feeds into what I want to talk about now because I've heard you mention several times blended and braided funding and um, that we'll get into a couple things with that and that feeds into a program that we have with uh, tuition-based preschool and then also something called purchase of care can you sort of fill us in on that what, what exactly does blended and braided mean and then you know some of the other aspects of it so we're looking for uh, you know as I mentioned our first goal to really service as many children as we can um, and then the second is we're looking for sustainability of our programs so the struggle point that we have, and not to get too much into the, to the weeds here with things, but in our K through 12 world, whenever a student work um, comes into your doors, you receive um, funding for that unit count funding. So essentially every 20 students in kindergarten, you receive a teacher. In the pre-K world, you do not have that. Um, you only are provided, whether it's a, a Head Start grant, um, which we're fortunate to have, and that's what Project Village is based on, or we have um, what we call uh, special education or 619 funds. So essentially for every 12 students, um, we get a teacher. And that funding is mainly for, for students with, with various types of special needs. Basically. Correct. Okay. So, but as I mentioned, our goal is to service other students with at-risk 
uh, factors or have a more blended program where we have students of all different types um, and backgrounds and um, we run our programs to be very rich. So the one of the ways that we've looked for a sustainability is to do a mix of funding. So um, where students, we well for parents for the first time, have been able to, last year we started tuition, which they pay monthly fees. Um, and that's new to the district, but that's actually allowed us to do other things um, for camps to begin to have um, richer programs in a sense that we can offer more with parents providing tuition. And we've done that with our uh, preschool camps, our emerging camps, and then now, of course, with um, students attending our preschool programs. Those parents that cannot afford tuition, uh, we are looking at becoming a licensed agency to accept purchase of care in our building. Uh, and the state will invest if a parent is working hard, but they realize that even though they're working hard, their income still isn't isn't very much. That if you are a quality program with that five-star rating, that they will invest in, in a tuition base, but it's through the state funding. And then we're looking at more um, Head Start grants as well as... Um, as I mentioned, the special education funding. Mm -hmm. So more of a wraparound um, funding model to, mm -hmm. to sustain those programs and to service mm -hmm. more children. So there's a lot of, lot of funding sources involved here when we talk about this. Yes. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and as I mentioned, um, we're not only interested in blending those those fundings, but really still staying true to some of those wonderful, um, rich pieces that are with the program as well. So how can you not just mesh things together and create one program and it look like a K-12, but still provide some uniqueness and do some very different things in preschool, um, such as the home visits or having parents um, requiring them to do community hours or uh, even offering services from mental health to the food pantry for our parents. Mm -hmm. yeah. So basically the district, it, in a way, sort of has a, uh, a three-year plan map, mapped out of things that we would, would like to do if possible. Um, can you sort of just talk about that a little bit and talk about maybe where we want to go with this in the, in the future? Sure. So we have a lot of work in the Indian River School <laughs> District. And I think across the state, and um, any time that you have a focus on early learning like it is right now, uh, it really helps when it's nationally, it helps the state, and when it's the state push, it helps the district. So we have a great opportunity to create something something amazing that hasn't been done before. Um, so we do have three, or I'm sorry, four goals that really emulate what the, the, the state's focus, and they have um, done a lot of studying to see what their vision of preschool is and, and early learning in general. So one of our, our first goals is simply to provide a healthy start for all children. And by doing that, that's where, you know, you, you just heard me mention about having family goal setting, provide more mental health, um, have parents come and are attached to things like parent trainings, everything from balancing your checkbooks to even how to create a, a healthy meal for your your families. Um, one of the things we're looking into is even a community garden um, at the Early Learning Center to, to focus on that. 
We're also looking for um, our, our second goal is to have high quality early childhood programs and professionals. Those in early learning um, not only have to have teaching certifications, but they have to have a focus in early learning classes as well. Uh, and even our paraprofessionals and staff that work, they are trained above and beyond a, a typical teacher from K to 12. The, our paraprofessionals have to receive um, additional training, uh, such as um, an online course that's focused on um, early learning, as well as CPR training, first aid, those types of things that you would want to see in a program, I think, K through 12, but um, we definitely are enforcing that. Our last two goals, you know, as we, you mentioned earlier, are going into kindergarten. So we're looking, how can you do birth to age four and that transition into kindergarten? How can we make sure that's a seamless transition so parents know what's expected? that educators know where the child's coming from and what interventions have been provided and what resources they have been offered. And then, as I mentioned, we're looking at sustainability um, all the way to age three, focused on early literacy. Um, how can we get students ready and able to be where they need to be on grade level at, by grade three? Yeah. One of the things that you said is interesting. I just want to touch on it again. It, it, a lot of the, it looks like a lot of the overriding factors and a lot of the, the motivation behind the preschool is to have kids ready to start kindergarten on the same level as their peers, basically. Correct. Is that, is that correct? It's interesting. We have an amazing community, um, and we have a lot of community partners that there are uh, fabulous um, preschool and early learning centers along with ourselves in, in the community. Uh, but we're finding pockets of students that really need support, ones that um, cannot afford uh, a quality education setting. How, setting, how do we provide and get them ready for school? We're finding a lot of students that technology is now the babysitter. So they're not necessarily playing educational games. Uh, so they might sit in front of a, a TV a lot or in front of a electronic device. And we want them to come to our program and, and not, um, and parents have an opportunity to have a program such as ours. So we, um, you know, the kind of the pendulum has shifted from it used to be years ago, preschool was babysitting, and then the mindset was it was really focused on rigor. Uh, we'd like to think that we have a mix, that we have a very well-rounded program here that is focused on um, guided play and learning, um, where students still have rigorous standards that they meet, but we're doing it in ways um, that children aren't always offered um, when they go home. As a parent, what should you look for in a, in a preschool or early learning program? The uh, very first thing I would ask is about that star rating. Um, what level star are you? And even DOE has an early learning website where a parent can go to, they can type in the name of the facility or um, provider and to see what level star they are. Because that means that you've had a really, you've gone through a rigorous um, process, you know, with the state and you have a well-rounded program. Yeah. So that's the main thing. Look for that 
high star rating. Yes, right? <laughs> high star rating because then yeah. you know for sure you have everything from um, the schedule that the students to the nutrition to even um, the instructional materials that are in front of them um, have been approved and are of quality. So that's the first thing. Well, Audrey, you've given us some really great information today, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your busy back-to-school schedule to, to meet with us today and talk about this. Yes, yeah, so, uh, and we always here to answer questions for any parents, uh, as well as have them come and visit the Early Learning Center, and just to be on the lookout to, to see the amazing things that are happening in the Indian River School District surrounding early learning. Uh, we can't wait for the future and to see, see what it brings. Can anyone with questions contact you? Absolutely, they mm-hmm. may contact me at audrey.carry. It's um, C-A-R-E-Y is my last name, at I-R-S-D for Indian River School District, dot K-12, dot D-E, dot U-S, or feel free to call 302-436-1000. Terrific. And Audrey, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. few reminders for parents before we wrap up this episode. The 2018-2019 school year begins on Tuesday, September 4th for students in grades K through 12. Preschool students will return on Monday, September 10th. Daily starting and ending times for all schools will remain the same this year. A full list of those times is available on the district website. Open houses will be held at all schools in late August and early September. A full schedule is available on the district website and Facebook page. There will be no school for students on Thursday, September 6th due to Delaware's primary election day. Teachers and paraprofessionals, however, should report to work. The Indian River School District is still seeking candidates to fill a vacancy on the Citizens Budget Oversight Committee. Candidates for this vacancy should reside in IRSD Election District 4. The application and additional information is available on the district website at irsd.net. That does it for this back-to-school episode of the IRSD Spotlight Podcast. This podcast is produced by the Indian River School District. Episodes can be accessed through iTunes or by visiting irsd.net and going to the podcast link under the Discover IRSD tab. It is also available through several mobile podcast apps. On our next episode, we sit down with Sussex Central High School drama teacher David Warwick to discuss the Take Two Drama Club's upcoming season, which has an air of mystery surrounding it as we enter the new school year. Look for that episode coming in September. Thank you for listening to the IRSD Spotlight, and be sure to join us throughout the year for more great news and information from the Indian River School District. As always, remember that Indian River truly is a model of excellence.